when I was a kid, I could see things. Things humans aren't supposed to see. You save me before you can do it again, right? I've been watching you for a long time. It's only in the face of horror that you truly find your noblest self. Look, you want to torture me, spank me, lick me, do it. But if this poetry shit continues, just shoot me now, please. Welcome to Now Playing's DC Heroes Retrospective Series. This might take me a really long time. Continuing our look at movies based on DC Comics characters, Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob will be reviewing the film adaptations of Tank Girl. My God, she'll be fun to break. Constantine. I know the circles you travel in. They call demonology exorcisms. And Jonah Hex. Mark my words, gentlemen. The very fate of our nation may rest on the shoulders of Jonah Hex. These podcasts will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. I need to see what she saw. You do this, there's no turning back. You see them, they see you. Close your eyes. Why? Today we're discussing Constantine, starring Keanu Reeves, Rachel Wise, Shia LaBeouf, Tilda Swinton, and directed by Francis Lawrence. This is Carvalho. Arnie Carvalho, asshole. (laughs) Stuart in LA. And this is the host that can't buy his way into heaven, Jacob. And we are looking at a post-Matrix Keanu film. A post-Matrix sequel Keanu film, I should add. Yes, thank you. This is all about the Matrix. I thought this was about DC heroes, guys. We're supposed to be building the Superman. And of course, we couldn't talk about Superman before we talk about this. Now, I don't know anything about this as a comic book. Jacob, I turn to you. DC, when did they publish Constantine? When was this popular? Well, first it's Constantine. I know they call him Constantine, but I want to get that out of the way or else some fan will correct us. It's actually pronounced Constantine. He showed up in 1985 in a comic book series that we will get to talk about later on in this retrospective, Swamp Thing. Yeah, I wondered if this should be the third installment of our Swamp Thing retrospective. (laughs) What? Yeah, Alan Moore, he had this epic run on Swamp Thing in the 80s. I want to clarify, Alan Moore, V for Vendetta Alan Moore, Watchmen Alan Moore. That Alan Moore, he did this great run on Swamp Thing, totally redefined the character, and actually that book created the Vertigo label. I talked about that a little bit last week with Tank Girl, and Constantine, he was this magician that kind of just showed up in Swamp Thing and helps guide Swamp Thing to his destiny and realize who he is. Based on Sting, like the artist for the comic, just really liked Sting and wanted Sting as a superhero. So when we talk about Keanu Reeves, just think that's supposed to be Sting. Blonde hair, spiked up like that. But Constantine proved to be pretty popular, got his own comic in 88 called Hellblazer, not named after him at all. But again, this was in the Vertigo line. I know Hellblazer. I was collecting comic books for a short period of time. I kept getting mad because I wanted Hellraiser comics. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, the comic was supposed to be called Hellraiser, but they didn't want to confuse it with the recently released movie, so it became Hellblazer, which is, I think, a bad 80s sport coat? I think everyone's (laughs) mad at this point. Damn it. All right. (laughs) 
Well, thank you for finally telling me what those Hellblazer comics I kept picking up and putting down were all about. It's this movie in print. And in fact, this movie was going to be titled Hellblazer, but then Hellboy came out. <laughs> and then they're like, well, we don't want to get too confused about movies with Satan ties, so we'll call him Constantine. Yeah, the funny thing was, I knew who Constantine was, I knew Hellblazer. When this came out, I didn't realize it was based on the comic till I started reading reviews. I thought, oh, it's a character with that name because of the historical Constantine and his ties to Christianity. Yeah, we'll get into it. This is a bit different than the comic. When I heard Keanu Reeves was starring in Constantine, I honestly thought we were going back to his Much Ado About Nothing days, and it was going to be Keanu as Constantine the Great, a Latin emperor. And I was like, (laughs) whoa. I was much happier when I heard it was a comic book movie. We already have shared some thoughts on the actor. He was, of course, the star of the Philip K. Dick movie, A Scanner Darkly. And I think I pretty much said there that you applaud somebody for trying to develop range. But Keanu is always best when he is keeping it, shall we say, minimal. He is an actor who is best when not pushed to go for big emotions for showing too much range. He will always be the California surfer guy, and when you ask him to do too much, the movies suffer for it. I would agree with you starting in the mid-90s and after, but my thoughts on Keanu, I love 80s Keanu and early 90s Keanu. I love Point Break, Parenthood, Bill and Ted Keanu. Because he could be fun and light and serious. He had a range that around the time of speed he lost for this kind of monotone, constant scowl, refused to have fun kind of personality, which worked for him. I'm a big fan of the first Matrix film. I also really like him in Devil's Advocate. But it can also really go wrong if you put him in the wrong picture, such as a Scanner Darkly in some ways. Or The Gift movie someday i hope we get to two movies i recommend but yes fine (laughs) you didn't like them okay no i want to clarify i didn't like him in them fair enough arnie i do agree i wish there was a bit more ted theodore logan keanu reeves around speed some point he just lost all the fun constantine he's a british character very cheeky very irreverent and in your face Keanu should have channeled more of that Ted Theodore Logan or Johnny Utah than what he's going to do here because it would fit the character more. He plays this character very different, in my opinion, than what we've seen on the page. Thank God he didn't do a British accent. Oh, my <laughs> God. That's always when he's in trouble. I'm just having nightmares of Dracula right now. Let's move on. Well, surprisingly, it wasn't because they cast Keanu that this character isn't British. They shopped this script around, starring a blonde-haired British exorcist. No Hollywood studio wanted to touch it. So the screenwriter changed it to an American and suddenly had a deal. Of course. Well, it is difficult to see how this would be a commercial project. Obviously, it's a big money project. This wouldn't be able to be done on a small indie movie kind of scale. Big special effects, sprawling action. If you were to do it the way that I'm watching this film, you would need Hollywood backing. And so you need that kind of approval for what Hollywood thinks is commercial here. It wasn't always Keanu either. It was initially Nick Cage. 
Oh, God, of course it was. Every comic book movie, even Wonder Woman, I'm sure he's putting on the tiara and spinning around and throwing lassos of truth on any executive he can grab, telling him he's perfect for the part. Yeah, it should have been someone like Ewan McGregor. You think about Train Spotting or even Shallow Grave. That's who this character is. Thank you for that. Yeah, I can see that now that you're describing this character. He definitely could have done that. But we're stuck with what we have. I think Keanu has gotten better over time. I think he learned how to steer his skills into something that became commercial. Yes, with the Matrix and Speed and some of his later roles. He doesn't work too much anymore. But I have to accept the fact that it is a Keanu Reeves movie and not expecting the character to be anything more than Neo. I'm fine with Matrix with demons. And I want to point out, this film was shot before The Matrix Revolutions was released. So he was very much riding high off the original Matrix. He was a get for this film. Mm. Well, yeah, so was the script riding high off The Matrix. Except with instead of robots, it's demons. See, I don't think that this script is necessarily commercial, partly because Hollywood has never really known how to play with Christian themes. It's been a long time since they made big blockbuster biblical epics here. The fact that they're dipping their toe into religion here, truly, I credit Passion of the Christ on this one. Passion of the Christ proved that you could give a really grisly, almost horror movie take on spirituality and not offend the Christian base. And I think that Hollywood Hollywood after that film was looking for ways to kind of work that in here. There had been all through the 90s a sort of apocalyptic book series that became really popular, Left Behind. And it was kind of like the plot that we're going to get here. And it became very trendy, I think, to have these kind of apocalyptic themed movies, this was the culmination of that. This was the World War Z of that, if you will. This is the movie where Hollywood went, okay, we'll make our version and we're going to dump the money bomb on it. But I wouldn't say that it was a commercially safe proposition to create an occultist superhero battling Satan and demons. I think that that could offend everyone, quite frankly. They do play up the Christianity aspect in this story. It's always there in the background, depending on the author or the comic, if they want to play that aspect up or not. It might just be more about black magic or Norse gods, not Thor, but older gods. But the storyline they took, this is actually based off an actual storyline from the comic. It was written by Garth Ennis. And if you know anything about Garth Ennis, is he has a lot to say, not usually positive about Christianity. So when he wrote this specific storyline that the movie's based off of, he really brought in those aspects of a battle between heaven and hell because a lot of his writing has to do with that. He's a very jaded Catholic. Hmm. Well, all I ask is that it's better than end of days. Arnie, why don't you give him a plot? Gonna warn listeners now, there was no way to do this short. It's a bit of a convoluted plot, and I think that if you haven't seen the movie, we're gonna bring up a lot of characters that I don't even mention in this plot summary as we go through. But in short... Or as short as I can make it. Arnie, I've seen the movie, so I hope you could clarify some things for me. John Constantine, played by Keanu Reeves, is an exorcist. A psychic who can see half-breed demons and angels among us, he's used this power to fight the demons. But the irony is, he does this not to help the damned, but rather to help himself. Tormented by his visions as a child, he committed suicide. 
while the doctors were able to revive Constantine, his soul was forever damned to hell as a suicide. To make matters worse, at the start of the film, we see Constantine diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. He'll be faced with death before he can find redemption. But in Mexico, a half-demon digs up the Spear of Destiny, the weapon that killed Christ in the crucifixion. With this tool, stained with the blood of Christ, Lucifer's son Mammon could come through to Earth and take control. But in addition to the spear, Mammon needs a psychic woman through whom he can be born, and he picks twin sisters Angela and Isabel, both played by Rachel Wise. Before the film starts, Isabel was institutionalized for talking about her visions, and when the demons start to pursue her, she jumps off the hospital roof, which really kickstarts this movie's plot. Because her sister Angela had denied and thusly lost her psychic abilities and become a police officer. But when Isabel kills herself, Mammon sets his sights on Angela, and with nowhere else to turn, she goes to Constantine, who was known by the police for his dealings in the occult. Constantine is more concerned with his own problems, but aided by his sidekick Chaz Kramer, played by Shia LaBeouf, he ends up helping Angela recover her psychic abilities and reveals that Mammon has teamed with several demons on Earth, as well as God's Archangel Gabriel, played by Tilda Swinton, to come to Earth. Many fights occur between Constantine and the various demons, but Angela is abducted, Chaz is killed, and in a major showdown, Constantine realizes all his mystical weapons are not enough to fight Mammon, so he commits suicide once more. But for all the demons he stopped, it's been said Constantine is one soul Lucifer would come to Earth himself to claim, and he does. Before taking Constantine to hell, Constantine tells Lucifer of Gabriel and Mammon's plans. As Lucifer and God have a long-standing wager over the fate of the human race, and Mammon's plot upsets that, Lucifer intervenes and stops his rebellious child, while God smites Gabriel by turning the angel into a human. But due to his sacrifice, Constantine is saved, and God starts to accept him into the kingdom of heaven, but the devil will not be denied his due, so he saves Constantine's life and cures him of his lung cancer, hoping that Constantine will live long enough to sin once more and become Lucifer's prize. And when Lucifer returned to hell, Maman stopped, Gabriel turned human, and Constantine cured, credits roll before showing us Chaz has turned into an angel. And I have to say, coming back to this film, I was not looking forward to this. I'd seen the trailers when it was being advertised, I saw it when it was first released on video, and I walked away with a real sour taste in my mouth. I'm not sure that I got everything that was going on, I saw it as a bit of a Matrix rip, I was burned by the two Matrix sequels a year earlier, and I walked away when I heard we were going to be doing this, it was with a reluctant sigh that I agreed. But when this film opens, I found myself opening my mind a little bit because the early scenes when we start off in Mexico and the Spear of Destiny is being uncovered it's got some good effects with a car crash, it's got some good action going on and we jump right into an exorcism in America with Keanu saving a little girl. This is the first time I've seen this, Arnie, and I think I came in with a pretty open mind. I always like crazy, over-the-top comic book action, so I was a little bit annoyed when I'm told about what the Spear of Destiny is, and then they're going to try to play it out like it's a mystery when you've already had exposition telling me, oh, whoever has it controls, blah, 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 blah. But I agree, I liked this opening scene, I'm not sure I totally understand it, why there's a couple of hobos digging in the dirt looking for something, and they just happen to know where to look, but I like that when the one guy takes the spear and he's walking down, and then boom! 
boom, out of nowhere. That grabs your attention, and then he kind of just gets up and keeps going. It's effective as this plays on. The storytelling gets muddled and hurts it, but early on, it does grab your attention, and it gets me into it right away. You know, I've seen this movie before, but unfairly, it remains the only film I've ever seen as a complete bootleg. And by that, I mean the kind where someone just had a camera and put it on their shoulder and recorded it in the movie theater and you can hear coughing and would you pass the popcorn and all of that. Like a horrible quality, which really takes away the best stuff about this movie is the visuals and the immersive world quality. It was a really washed out, bad copy. I swore that I would go back to this to see, well, maybe if I could understand it, but give it a fair shake. It left enough of an impression that I did want to see it again. And I think that's maybe just because I was the one that liked Doctor Strange. I like the idea that they're going to have my love of horror kind of work within a supernatural realm. What we're going to find out here early is that Keanu is truly a superhero. I really feel that. They give us a scenario that is straight up exorcist. Little girl girl is spider walking on the ceiling and priest is coming in a taxi cab standing outside to bring his bible on we saw that with the william friedkin film but the way that this is presented and the way that they do it well it's got an entirely different feel than the exorcist very quickly i recognize that this is an action movie and not a horror film and i like it for that i didn't recall the exorcist very well when i first saw constantine but having rewatched it for now playing and it's very much on my mind when i see this exorcism in the beginning yes it is a far more action oriented one i mean you got cgi demons jumping into mirrors and you've got humor with shia in a taxi cab that the mirror is going to get dropped on i agree this feels very actiony to me i'm not sure if it feels comic book, but it's definitely right in the right line for a Keanu Reeves film of this era. It's something I would expect from the star of The Matrix. And I like the kinetic energy. And yeah, you mentioned the visuals. This is a gorgeous film. I don't think I realized that the first time I saw it, when it was also on a really small screen. Here, seeing it this time, this thing is so beautiful. It is got a great use of tone, color, depth, and I had to look up Francis Lawrence. I didn't know him. He'd go on to do I Am Legends. He's now the heir apparent to the entire Hunger Games series. But he came from music videos and has a really good style. Coming from music videos can be a good thing or a bad thing. I think with him, he really developed a visual style that here in his feature debut is strong and alluring. Yeah, I think the challenge is when you're given a script as convoluted as this, and it seems to be borrowing so much from really famous scenes. I mean, it's on the poster of The Exorcist. Priest gets out of a taxi cab, looks up to confront the demon girl. I mean, come on. But the way that he films this, you're right. There's crazy overhead shots and CGI special effects. I think Lawrence really understands that he is making something that has an entirely different look than what Friedkin did back in The Exorcist. And that helps us. It helps me accept this as a B-movie and not have expectations for it to deliver in the same ways. I think the visuals tell us early that we could get something fun, but we're going to get something much lighter than The Exorcist. 
Yeah, it's been a, probably at least a decade since I've seen The Exorcist, so I wasn't tying things together like priest getting out of the taxi cab, but I definitely got that vibe. How can you not with like a 13-year-old girl possessed by a devil? And there's so much I like about this. This demon getting punched in the neck and when he's trapped in the mirror, but it falters for me because of Reeves. He's supposed to be selling this attitude. He's flipping this demon off. He's taking drags off his cigarette. He's supposed to be tough and cheeky and no nonsense. He just doesn't pull it off for me. As much as I'm liking this action, he goes and flips off this demon and says some lot. Everything's so quiet that he says because he's in his self-serious mode. It loses something for me. I want to like this, but every time he has to open his mouth and say something smart-ass, it just falls flat. I thought the possessed were supposed to have the potty mouth, but he's the one that calls her an asshole. (laughs) Or I guess he's talking to the demon inside of her, but you're right about this. I thought it was just me and maybe my television set. There is something about the way that they bury the dialogue track in this movie. I don't know whether it's because all the other sound effects are too loud or maybe they're just wanting us to lean in to try and hear or maybe it's not important what anybody says because you'll never understand it. But I had the volume cranked to 11 on this mofo trying to hear what was being said until I realized that, hey, it doesn't really matter. I did turn the volume way up, which made some of the action scenes really loud, but I did hear what he had to say. I was able to hear his dialogue without trouble. I was just wincing during explosions. (laughs) But I thought it might be because of the lung cancer. I agree with what you said earlier, Jacob. I thought that a really more fun Johnny Utah Keanu here would be ideal. But I kind of like the Keanu we have here. He's not cheeky, which means he's not like the comic. And I wonder if we're back where we were in the days of Marvel, where it's not like the comic, so that's a problem for you. I've never read the comic, but I kind of like his attitude. It feels very bitter, very self-serving. It's working for me as a character. I get that. He's bitter and self-serving. Like, I get that that's what he's supposed to be doing. It just doesn't come off that way. There's something about the acting where he just doesn't sell that to me. This is Keanu being Keanu instead of Keanu being a character that's bitter and has been suicidal in the past. I understand what this character is supposed to be like. I just don't get it from his acting. I don't know that we need a great performance here. The bar for me is Ben Affleck. We're going to see later when we get into the backstory that this guy's got a lot in common with Daredevil and that he had this childhood experience that formed him that gave him the superpowers he now uses on exorcisms like this. He tried to kill himself because he already was kind of psychic and by doing that, it made him better, right? Am I to understand that by taking that two-minute ride to hell, he damned himself by taking his own life, but he also expanded his powers so that he can now do what he does. I took it as it literally scared the hell out of him. He didn't want to go back there. He wanted to do as much good as possible to try to get back into heaven. I don't know if it made his powers stronger, but it definitely made him focus on to use him for good. Yeah, he didn't repress them, as we'll see other characters do. He wanted to use those powers to change his fate. He knows that hell is real now because he's seen it, and ironically, he's destined himself for it because, well, Catholic scripture tells you, if you take your own life, that's it. You're damned to hell. Even if you don't succeed in the suicide? (laughs) 
that's what I'm confused about. That's one problem that Catholics may have is the reason suicide is seen as the unforgivable sin is because you can't ask for forgiveness. If you kill yourself, then you can't repent. And per the Catholic religion, if you ask for God's forgiveness, you will be granted it. You have to go to confession. So if you kill yourself and succeed, yes, you go to hell. In this case, I think he could just go see a priest and get out of this little conundrum. He's friends with the priest. Yeah, not a very good priest, but a priest. <laughs> so I don't know how truthful it is to Christian belief, but... It's a wonderful setup for this character who knows hell is real, can see demons, and realizes what he's in store for. Yeah, I like the fact that they are like, we'll be seeing you soon. They have a relationship. They recognize him. You are casting me out now, but we're going to eventually get you. Kind of like when a cop gets put behind bars. He knows that it's going to catch up with him. And I like the conflict. I agree. It fills in the gaps of what Keanu isn't doing by having a conflict like this. I mean, Keanu basically just keeps his face stoic and smokes a lot in this film. I'm not going to say it's a great performance, but... Within the context of this world, being surrounded with all the great performers that he is, it's really amazing when you realize that almost everyone else in this cast was about to break big and win an Oscar or at least get nominated or have some kind of breakthrough here. I feel like he's helped out a lot by his surroundings and by this character's backstory. I'm with him because I like what he's doing here. And I want to focus, yes, on that backstory. It's such a great backstory, and you're right. The entire cast here does such a good job of selling it that I believe this character's history. In so many films, you'd see a scene like this, and because of the actors and the script, it is the first time an exorcism has ever occurred, even if it's supposed to be the hundredth. Here, I think feel his history with these characters like Balthazar and Gabriel and all these other demons and half-breeds that infest this world. And I love that. I love the atmosphere that is being created here, even if I'm trying to get my hands around a plot even a half hour in. We find out that Constantine has lung cancer. I think that was one of the few things I knew about the character going in is that he was terminal. We get that revelation early on and it sets him up as really impatient to try to find a way out, flailing for redemption. Question for you guys. The lung cancer is because he smokes a lot, right? And the smoking was another form of suicide, right? Like, he believed that he might as well just smoke himself to death because there was no point in living. He was damned, right? Is that the basic gist of it? And then at some point, he thought that he might be able to buy his way into heaven. I wish I understood when that light bulb came on. We only understand that conflict because he runs into, as you say, Gabriel, and they talk about it. And it's real fun to see what we would think of an angel being so evil, I suppose, in the way that he's taunting Keanu that he'll never get out. Are we going to say he or she, given that it's played by Tilda Swinton? <laughs> is Gabriel he? <laughs> yeah, Tilda Swinton. What is she doing here? She's played androgynous before. She did a little movie called Orlando, where half of it she played a woman, and the other half she played a man. I think that's probably why they gave her this part. You could read it either way you want to. And I think that's the right way to go in a lot of Christian 
scripture or interpretation, angels are gender neutral. They're androgynous beings. They're not either sex. And this is the right actress to play someone androgynous. Yep. And an actress that is two years away from getting her Oscar. We're going to hear that again and again. A lot of people up for Oscars out of this, but not Keanu. Well, to go back to your question about the lung cancer, I took him as smoking to deal with the stress of what he saw. You know, he's not righteous, but I didn't see that as a form of second suicide. I just saw him as a smoker, and it is what gave him the lung cancer. Yeah, I just took him that he smokes. Lots of people smoke. I don't think they do it because they want to die. Right. But he has more reasons than most to prolong his life, and it just seems like maybe the wrong choice to go there. I would think that if you're fighting demons daily with dragon's breath, the last thing you're worried about killing you is a pack of cigs. Well, it's catching up with him now, and I like that he's got this addiction also to cough syrup. It's giving them some kind of emphysema, so he's swigging cough syrup like it's Mad Dog, like it's some kind of hooch that he picks up at the convenience store. I thought that was a really nice touch here, too. He is, in many ways, a classic hard-boiled detective kind of character. You know, he is, in a different era, what Humphrey Bogart would be playing. And it's that kind of character, I just wish I was seeing that on the screen. Fair enough. I'm not saying Keanu is Bogart, but I am saying that the touches that are being made in costume and these little details are helping sell that. They're helping Keanu, and I think he needs all the help he can get, which must be why they give him Shia LaBeouf. The beef, like, literally, that's what his last name means. I'm not making fun of the guy. Well, then I can say, where's the beef? Because he disappears for most of the film. (laughs) He does! (laughs) Like, I'm shocked that he shows up in this film. Like, I had no idea. And he's in, like, the first 15 minutes, and then he's gone for the next hour. Well, let's keep in mind, this was pre-Transformers. He was a working actor. He'd been in holes. He was up and coming, but his big breakthrough was still two years away. So a supporting role is perfect here. But when I see him in that taxi cab in the very first scene, I couldn't remember what happened to him. But I'm looking at him. I'm like, he's either a traitor or he's meat. One of the two. Literally, he's meat. The beef. (laughs) I didn't even remember him from my first watching here. I wouldn't have known when I saw it in 2005 who he was. I'm not an even Stevens fan. But of course, having been on the Transformers retrospective, it was a real jolt to uh, see him here. And I couldn't remember what his character would be. He makes some kind of talk early on about how he feels like a slave when he really wants to be an apprentice. Is there any basis in the comic book, Jacob? Can we understand how this character came to be? see him as sort of the Renfield to Dracula, but other than that, I don't know where they're coming from with why is he driving this guy around if he feels that he's enslaved? What's binding him? No, in the comic book, they're friends. They're more the same age, and they were friends since they were teenagers, and so when he needs a taxi, he hooks up with them. Okay, so he is a real taxi driver. He's not the personal chauffeur of Constantine. No, he's not the Cato of this duo here. They were setting him up here for something that I don't feel like he necessarily got. But I thought for sure, you know, his conflict is that he wants to be included in the cool club. That There's actually literally a club of like people that have ESP or vampires or Blade probably goes there on his off days. But he wants <laughs> to be admitted to this club. He wants to be seen as an equal to Constantine. And he's not. And so I really felt like his character arc should be about proving his worth in that realm. I kept waiting for him to develop a power or to get Constantine out of a certain situation that he couldn't with his tools. I didn't know what they were going to do with him, but I thought he would be a much more functional character than literally driving Constantine from point 
A to point B. It's almost a nothing roll. It really is. And what's funny is Constantine has this entire team of people, right? He has all these people he goes to for weapons. He's got Chaz to drive him around. The priest guy, Hennessy, is the one that booked him the gig for getting the girl unpossessed. And then there's Papa Midnight, who is also a contact of his. I like all these contacts, but the problem is Constantine can only have one apprentice at a time. And when the movie opens, that apprentice is Chaz. And he's ignored and left, you know, to wait in the car, that old typical action movie standby, wait in the car. But... When Rachel Wise shows up as Angela, she becomes the new apprentice, and Keanu starts to teach her the ways of the mystical force, and Chaz literally just disappears. And then, late in the movie, when Angela gets kidnapped, Chaz reappears. But it's like the screenwriters couldn't handle having two learners in the script at once, and so, yeah, Shia gets the shaft. And it should be said, there were two different screenwriters. I think there probably were numerous iterations of this script. This really does feel like it was cobbled together from eight different writers and ideas on where to take the character. You're absolutely right. They didn't need everything that they have here. I appreciate them in their individual moments, but not well integrated with this storyline. Well, thank you, Stuart. You just answered a question I was about to ask. How many versions of the script were there? Because it does feel like we're getting different drafts here. There's so many characters in this film, and I never feel that they really gel. Like, at least in Blade 3, I got how all those characters work together. Here, it just seems like they drop in and out as they're needed. Yeah, they don't seem to know each other as well. I don't think that Chaz ever really hangs out with Beeman. Why not just make those the same character? Beeman is the guy that gets Keanu all of his cool weapons. Gives him, like, a beetle in a matchbox that he shakes and helps him fight some bug creature later. And Dragon's Breath is, like, the firepower of the mystical world. I like that they have a character that supplies the armory for how to do battle with evil. Why not just make that the same character? Why have Beeman and Chaz just do them both? I think a lot of it was being true to the comic book. Now, there are two credited screenwriters, Kevin Broadbin and Frank Capello. And one is the first screenwriter who went around, he's a Brit, he loved Constantine, he had made a couple movies, this was his pet project, and he wrote a script that got sold. And then it was taken away from him. The other is the last writer who worked on it at the end. And the two have a commentary together where the first guy's like, oh, did I do that or did you do that? And they're both really happy with the result. But this is a film that underwent a lot of changes, especially in editorial. There are entire subplots of even more characters Ugh, cut oh, from geez. this film. Keanu had a half-demon lover hooker person who had a lot of scenes. She's the one who, at the very end of the film, she has one line left in the film from a major role. She just says, HOLY WATER! <laughs> Funny, I don't remember that moment. Okay. <laughs> yeah, she was his lover, and she went on to be... uh pretty big actress herself. Michelle Monaghan is the actress. She'd go on to be in Gone Baby Gone and Mission Impossible 3 and 4. She broke through, but here she has one line left in the movie. Hmm. But they really were honing this and doing reshoots and trying to get this. I said it was filmed before the third Matrix film was out. That was when principal photography was done. There were so many reshoots, re-edits, reworking of this up until release. And so if you feel this is a story that wasn't quite complete, yeah, 
it was a first-time director who perhaps didn't have his hand fully around the story, and screenwriters who were perhaps too loyal to the comics and added a few characters too many. I think they might have been trying to go for mystery. Who's the bad guy? I mean, obviously Balthazar's a half-demon, you know he's bad, but that priest looks like he's got some bad mojo going on. He's kind of a slimy, no-good character, even though he's Constantine's friend. I think they were really trying to build mystery. Who is the traitor? We find out it's Gabriel, but they wanted to give you a lot of suspects before we get there. Yeah, I see that there's three plots here. And the one plot is that demons are coming into the real world. And that comes through in that Linda Blair opening scene with the demon almost smashes through the mirror before they toss it out and break it and trap him on the other side here. But that's what's happening, that demons are more and more crossing over and becoming what they call half-breeds. And that the main half-breed dude is Gavin Rossdale. <laughs> you remember Bush? They were an early 90s band. Okay, they were a Nirvana ripoff, but they sold him as the pretty version of Kurt Cobain. And he had a small career there and then married Gwen Stefani and disappeared for a good decade while he's back as this half-demon. I have no idea what function he serves in this movie, but I think of him as being the main bad guy. I think of him being the one that's leading this insurgency into the real world by all these demons. But no, he's just kind of hanging around stairwells and clubs and all of that. But he is part of the plot. He's one of the lackeys. What's not part of the plot in this film? There's so much plot. I think he's the one who kills Constantine's weapons maker. Oh, really? Yeah. He definitely kills the priest. All right. And I won't use any word definitely, but there is a scene in a liquor store where Hennessy, who is a priest that can speak to corpses and what have you, goes on a drinking binge and drinks himself to death. And he's there picking up chips and stuff. Is that what happened? I thought he couldn't drink, because every time he tried to drink, nothing would come out. I'm like, is that his magic power? He has to have liquor to stay alive? I'm so confused. It's a cool scene, the way that they do it, because we see it from the priest's point of view, and in the priest's point of view, he's bashing open bottles and chugging them, and no liquid is touching his lips. But what the people on the crime scene eventually say is, the man just came in here and went crazy and got alcohol poisoning because he just downed all of this alcohol in a short amount of time. So it was a trick played on his mind by this demon Balthazar. At least that's as close to what I can understand is happening. At the risk of getting too behind the scenes this is from the comic where this character is morbidly obese and he gets cursed by a demon, basically the Stephen King thinner curse, and he runs into an all-you-can-eat buffet and gorges himself but is constantly getting thinner till he wastes away till nothing, and that was in the script straight out of the comic. And the studio execs go, eh, that's too expensive, and so we get this. Okay. Well, you know, I accept it. I think it's kind of funny that an alcoholic priest is named Hennessy. How else could he be if he's, yes. he's the henny? But I kind of like this scene. I like a lot of these scenes as individual moments. What I will keep bumping up to again and again is that their flow together is all kinds of chaos that sometimes I'll ride and sometimes I'll resist. I think it's easier in the beginning to really go with this movie on all of its crazy tangents because we're still trying to feel it all out. I'm still hoping that it will all come together and forge some kind of unity or close enough to it by the end here but while we got this plot one with half breeds coming in the world we got plot two with the mexican and the spear i have no idea what that's going to be 
I have to thank Wolfenstein 3D, the mid-90s video game, because that made me familiar with the Spear of Destiny. It had a sequel called the Spear of Destiny, where Hitler had the spear in World War II, and I had to go shoot Nazis to get it back. One little problem, the spear isn't what killed Jesus. There's nothing in the scripture about that. He died, and then the soldier went to stab him to see if he was dead, if he would respond, because they thought he died a little bit too quick. And that's what the spirit, like, it bugs me. If you're going to do this whole movie based on, really, a lot of Catholic ideas and Christianity, get the basics right. Oh, well, I just took it to be, here's a mortal object that actually was able to inflict pain on an immortal being, thus giving it that kind of power. Power. That's what I thought its usefulness was. It's essentially a knife that has proven in the past that it can cut through God. And so what better way to have it for whatever this plot is leading for? It doesn't really work when I find out what they use it for. But up to that point, I think that this is an object that's going to kill the Son of God or some kind of God. Maybe an angel. Maybe Gabriel. Maybe it's an assassination on a spiritual being. Again, I like some of the effects when the Mexican is walking through the border. I'm, I'm guessing it's Texas because there's a lot of cattle around and they're just dropping dead and dying. You know, you have the plagues of Egypt, that kind of things pop to mind here. I like these scenes, but yeah, I'm with you, Stuart. I totally forgot about this spear as we get into the second act of this movie. They play it up so much during the first act and then it kind of just goes away till they need it. Kind of like LaBeouf and so many plot points here. Like everything. Seriously. Yeah. When Rachel Wise shows in, the movie becomes all around her, and all of Constantine's world falls away. And narratively, that could work if she was seen as his redemption, but that's not how it plays here. He's her teacher, and so it just feels really awkward that we're introduced to this really groovy in-depth world that they've crafted so well, and then we completely ignore it for a lot of exposition scenes and Rachel Weisz fully clothed in a bathtub. Yeah, Rachel Weisz is what I would call the third plot, and probably the most important one. Certainly the most marketable one. Rachel Weisz, by the way, winning her Oscar this year, not for this movie, Constant Gardner. And I think her introduction is kind of the perfect summation for what I think is wrong with this film. We see this woman, she's in a mental hospital, in a tub, then she's jumping off a building, and then we see her laying in a bed, because she's a twin, so we don't realize we're seeing both of these twins back and forth. They play it as almost as if it's all the same person. I don't know if this is a dream. Is this a vision in hell? I don't know. I'm confused at this point, and I don't know why they want to confuse me here. I am so glad it's not just me who's confused by this, because I will admit, I was like, are they both Rachel Wise? Did Rachel Wise try to kill herself and live? They needed to kind of say that they were twins a little bit earlier. Maybe a scene of her visiting the twin in the hospital or something would have helped, because I do get a little bit confused at the very beginning of what it is I'm seeing. Was it a dream that she jumped off the roof? And it takes a while for it to spell it out. And again, in some movies, that could be a wonderful hook to intrigue me. Here, it just feels like bad storytelling. I didn't get too confused by it. I just feel like they wanted to have a lot of freaky gotcha moments. That this is a series of shocks rather than it is a really coherent plot. And it is a surprise to find out that the woman we just saw leap to her death lives on as this cop character. I mean, I think that they're just trying to get us. And whether it really pays out or whether we need to be confused at this moment is incidental. I like the plot, though. I like the twin psychics. One goes to the nut house. One becomes a cop. When we're first introduced 
to Angela, the cop. She's sitting there talking about how she kills more people than most cops do, and it's because she always knows where to shoot. She always knows where to be. That actually pays off very well because it plays into her psychic ability. I like that she repressed her ability to be psychic and that this movie is a recovery of it. It's a good plot. I'm intrigued by it, and Rachel Wise, very good actress, very deserving of the recognition she would get for other films. She brings her A-game here. I also like her in The Mummy, though. She's just a good actress who can act well in action films. If you brought in Carrie Ann Moss, not so much. Uh, They're pretty interchangeable for what they're asked to do in this film, though. I don't feel like this is a part that really showcases Rachel Weisz. I agree. Big fan of her. But she's essentially here to be, you're right, the ingenue. She will eventually take her case after a few false starts in which she ends up thinking Constantine's kind of an ass. She'll recognize by looking at security video that her sister repeated his name while she was jumping off the side of the building. Why she did that, I do not know. But that is what brings these two together to start Act 2. Did she even really say his name, or is it a vision of her saying a name? I'm not quite sure. It only gets more muddled when we catch up with the sister who committed suicide. Yeah, the whole thing that we'll realize is that if she did, in fact, kill herself, that's the debate. All that Rachel Weiss really wants to do is give her sister a proper Catholic burial, and if she's declared a suicide victim, then she's not going to get that. She doesn't want to think that her sister is rotting in hell, so she is out to prove that there was some kind of cult mentality. She was either pushed, or when the security camera shows that she willingly jumped off, well, she was brainwashed to do it. That there must be a conspiracy to have put her on that ledge, because she would never in her right mind have done it. And so they decide to go to hell to find out if she's there. I thought that was kind of unexpected. And I want to give this film some props. I'm known as the person who complains about CGI in a lot of movies. I think here it's really well done. I like this vision of hell. I don't think it looks not computer generated, but it's atmospheric and really has a good sense of style to it. It's again going back to this director's visual flair being something that's clicking with me. Not sure why you need the cat in the pail of water, but that was even hard in Exorcist. There was no way to visualize how a priest was going to force a demon out of a girl's body. You need to give us visual things. I guess it works as much as anything. It's a weird moment, but I do like hell, and I wish we had more time to spend here. I do think part of the problem, Stuart, what you're saying is that they tie this so much into Christian mythology that it kind of loses the sense of, from the comic book at least, where he's a black magic user. He uses magic. So here I think it's supposed to be, here's a magic trick. This is a seance that will get you to go into another dimension or into hell in this case. So I I think because they have tied it so much into Christianity that it does make it, well, you know, you're not going to find in the Bible that if you put your feet in water and stroke a cat that you're going to be able have visions of the devil. (laughs) Man, if Dr. Strange were doing this, he'd just rub his ring and put on some pimp chains. I think I like his approach better. It's funnier. I like thinking cats are evil. So we find that Isabel, the twin sister, is in hell. So the obvious thing is like she was possessed by a demon for some reason to throw her off this building, but she really did commit suicide? Is that what they're saying here? Because she's there in hell. 
She did it to stop Satan's son from coming to Earth. She could see what was happening and committed suicide either because she couldn't handle it or she was strong enough to take her own life and damn herself to hell to stop it, one of the two. Well, then she would be in heaven then. It would have been a self-sacrifice, which is one of the themes. This is why Keanu can't get into heaven because he's so selfish about everything and he never does it for other people. If she threw herself off as kind of a warning sign to get this investigation going, it just seems weird that she actually does end up in hell. No, Christianity celebrates martyrdom. This would make her a saint, not damned to hell. You're absolutely right. This has an internal logic problem where some characters kill themselves and they're rewarded. Keanu, by the end of this, will be rewarded for making this sacrifice. She never gets out, right? Does she even escape hell? Do they find a way for her to get away? She does get out at the very end because Keanu uses his one genie wish. Oh, right. From God to get her to go to heaven. That's right. They did like kind of duct tape that into the end scenario there. He says something in an offhanded line. You're right. Because that doesn't sit well with me. The thought that this woman, in order to prevent the Antichrist, would make the ultimate sacrifice and have to spend the rest of her time with the Antichrist. That's wrong. But we come to find out that Angela is also psychic and has to rediscover her powers. And that takes a lot of screenplay time here as Keanu explains the entire nature of the half demons and half angels that are around that can't upset the balance but can influence basically the old cartoon metaphor of the angel on one shoulder the devil on the other is real but instead of being little metaphors on your shoulder they're real people who are surrounding you telling you to do good or bad things yeah, and that there are versions of the Bible in hell that have more chapters to them, like Corinthians goes up to 21. I like that. Oh, that's real funny. That got a true laugh out of me. I thought they were really pulling something by doing that. It's a whole lot of mumbo jumbo, and it is a lot of yep, 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 yep. I wish people were doing more. It does feel like a lot of wandering into shocks and strange imagery and less of a true detective story. What we'll eventually find out from all of this, because they get a Bible quote off a window, and that's it, is that they learn what the plot is. Antichrist is coming, and he needs a psychic, and he needs God's help. And so, this only psychic left is Angela, and they've got to determine who the God helper is. I guess we're meant to think it's the Mexican. That's almost reached L.A. by foot now. He's somehow jumped over the border and gotten here, with the help of a few carjackings. And we never really find out why he digs up the spear and what his motivation is. I think he's a half-demon, but he's... No, no, no. He was a regular dude that was just, like, digging in the dirt. I don't think that he was motivated <laughs> to find that. That was a purely happenstance thing. It could have been a dog. I mean, it could have been anything that would find that spear. Which is an even worse explanation. Yeah, you're right. I'm not <laughs> defending it at all by saying that, but that's my take on it. That was mine, that it was a homeless guy that was digging for some reason. Yes, exactly. That he literally had nothing better to do than to kick up rocks and dirt, and he just so happened to be standing on the spot where some how this came over from Israel to be buried in Mexico. Well, all right, a few things. The Spear of Destiny, there's several out there that are around, but it was lost for a period of time. Hitler did supposedly have it in real life. Hitler never went to Mexico, but okay. <laughs> Hitler lost it. Well, a lot of the Nazis went over to South America, so it made its way up. Yeah, South, very South. <laughs> well, 
It made its way from Brazil up to Mexico. I, though, thought he was doing a targeted dig search. Keep in mind, a lot of these half-angels, half-demons, I'm not even sure if they know they're half-angels, half-demons. Not all of them are as savvy as Balthazar. And when we see, like, the liquor store clerk with the wings when the Mm. priest is drinking himself to death, does that liquor store clerk know he's an angel, or is he just a force of good among us? I thought this guy was either possessed or demon or something so that he went he dug up the spear there weren't a lot of holes around he's digging up the spear and then he's carrying it with purpose and supernatural powers to california yeah it remains a mystery and maybe the less said the better that certainly seems to be the policy on it and it's funny because there's a lot said in this movie but there's not a lot explained in this movie I just think it's one of those things that you just can't. And truly, it's not what this movie excels at. When I am looking at these visuals, I am like, wow, this is like Blade Runner meets the prophecy. When I am having to talk through this plot, I'm like, wow, this is like Golden Child. I mean, it's really (laughs) not good. I can recognize and find my enthusiasm for it melting as I confront these plot details. But I want to stress, as garbled as this is, I am still having a good time here. A relatively good time, despite the fact that I can't hear what's being said, or maybe because of it, I really just think as a visual feast, this is fun to watch. Almost every scene shows me something neat. And... I'm with you there. When I had to do the plot summary, I did have to go to Wikipedia because I'm like, all right, guy with spear, why'd he dig up the spear? And I got all the mammon stuff, but I didn't get all the other parts. But it's back to what I've said before about gisting a movie. It has enough mumbo jumbo that I feel I understand it, even if I can't nail down all the details, and it's taking me for a good ride. It's like in Agata de Vida. Sometimes you just groove out to the music. Except that's a 19-minute song. Yeah. And it's got to keep providing those grooves. Stuart, you say a visual feast. I'm getting visual nibbles here. I'm getting some crumbs that are barely holding my attention. I mean, I like it when they bring in the weapons. You get holy brass knuckles. Like, I think stuff like that is cool where they're doing this Christian spin on these things. Later on, we're going to see a sprinkler system filled with holy water. Like, I like those little nibbles that I get throughout this film, those crumbs, but it's just not enough to really get me into this. Whoa, 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 whoa. I gotta interrupt there. The crucifix gun? Tell me they made this up for the Hollywood movie. There's no way this could exist on the comic book. This is beyond ridiculous. Who, why would Christ endorse a gun? Why would you make a shotgun with the shape of a crucifix? Obviously, you never watched the anime Trigun, where there's a guy that has a full-size cross that is a gun. (laughs) This is not a new idea. Oh, it's so bad, though. So bad. In the comics, from what I got from the supplemental material here, Constantine does not use a gun. They decided Keanu should use a gun. They actually simplified things. This entire movie was going to basically be like a video game where he'd go through the entire plot and pick up another piece along the way, like Gabriel Knight in the 90s. And when it was all said and done, he had the pieces to make the super gun. Instead, they're like, yeah, that's just too convoluted. Let's just give him a super gun. He has a super gun. 
That was too convoluted for this film? <laughs> well, you know what? You mentioned the word video game. I almost feel like it was thinking on the other side. How can people play a video game if he doesn't have some way of implementing his powers? We wouldn't just accept it if he made hand jives and brought his tattoos together. He had to have something to exact force against supernatural phenomenon. So this was the brilliant rewrite on this. I'm hating the crucifix gun. Like, truly, a jump the shark moment once they do this hate it so bad and Stuart, i'm not saying i like every weapon here there are some moments that i like but yeah that crucifix gun i i'm there with you to Stuart's point, there was a tie-in video game that came out, so who's to say there wasn't a marketing executive involved in this decision? But I like the look of it. It's a stupid concept, but it's a pretty gun. I love the brass knuckles, too. I did love those brass knuckles. I don't know if there's a lot of toyetic concerns in this film, but perhaps. <laughs> perhaps for that video game. I felt that that's exactly what I was watching. I felt like the Hollywood suits had come in with their marketing people and said, you must have toys for Constantine if he is a superhero and we We've given you this much money. You aren't making The Exorcist. You are making a big budget Doctor Strange. Well, maybe when Marvel remakes Doctor Strange, he'll have a big shotgun then. But I'm still grooving to it, though. Gun, all of it, it's stylistic enough that I like it. And Jacob, you say you're getting nibbles. I would almost describe it as tapas. You know, it's an entire meal of individual single-serve hors d'oeuvres. Because I love every scene. I love the scene where the priest is drinking himself to death. I love the fight between Constantine and Balthazar, where he throws the holy water in his face and pummels him with the brass knuckles. I like all of these scenes that involve mysticism. I even do like the talky scenes where he is putting Rachel Wise in the bathtub and basically drowning her until she's psychic and all of it. Even the talkier scenes are intriguing me because I'm invested in this plot. I want to know what Satan is up to. I love Satan as a villain in movies. He's so rarely done well, but you don't get bigger than the devil for a bad guy. So I'm open to it. I'm open to Catholic mythology being used in a horror film and an action film. There's a lot going right here that's keeping me invested, and I'm thinking it is just helping, though, that it is a second watching, because my first time through, I think I was right there with you, Jacob. I was not enjoying this at all. It wasn't what I wanted. I think I wanted even more action and a more coherent plot, but this time through, I'm kind of grooving on the world building being done. All I can say is, with the movie, until he pulls out the gun, it's a rapid decline. Even though they have a really cool way into the climax of the film, Angela gets sucked through some walls, and there's a really cool moment. She's whisked away, so we can finally bring however this is going to come together, together. Cool moment, but really bad. From this point forward, almost nothing I can endorse here. That we finally have Keanu decide, I need to use the chair, so he goes back to the club and forces Midnight, Dijmon Hansu, two years before his Oscar nomination, to, what, fry him in a prison electric chair from Sing Sing? And this does what, exactly? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he keeps going there and saying, I need the chair. <laughs> and I'll be honest, I had to go back and just rewatch that scene. What's this magic chair? It doesn't seem like the chair has any power. It seems like getting electrocuted has the power. But the chair allows him to have a clearer view of the demons 
and what their plan is. And it's in there that he sees this illegal immigrant with the Spear of Destiny. But he doesn't stop him because he's already got Angela and they're screwing in the pool. Well, he can't stop anything. He can only see. He can't influence in that vision. Are we to presume that because people were executed in here, they were evil people, and thus this ties him in with the evilness? Like, is that what I'm supposed to get at? Why it's this chair? Why couldn't he just stick his finger in a light socket? like, Or pet two cats while his feet were in water. <laughs> it's bogus. And if it just didn't look so cool, if that club weren't as cool as it was, I would just be hating it. But this is where they set Chaz up to be something that he'll never end up being. He starts making golden bullets, and he's finally impressed. Midnight and Midnight's like, why don't you come see me after all of this and I'll hire you as a dish boy or something. You know, uh, you get the sense that his character is going to do something and five minutes later he's dead. During this ambush in the hospital, Chaz is taken out quickly. I said at the beginning he was either a bad guy or he was meat and turned out he was meat. I just think it would have been more meaningful if he hadn't disappeared for an entire hour and then just come back for the end fight. It would have been a lot harder of a death if we felt he and Constantine were friends. I agree. Well, yeah, it should have been a Sherlock-Watson relationship. Instead, they go with Angela. But yeah, they needed to have a tighter relationship if this death was supposed to move us. And everyone's dying. I mean, all right, we've already just watched Gavin Rosdale die, and then the B-men died by bees before that. All of this, I just feel like, oh, what? So this is the kind of movie where a character comes, gives you one bit of information, and then is yanked out of the storyline. That's where The Matrix got in trouble. They were pulling that crap in Matrix 2, and they've learned nothing here. Because this was filmed before. (laughs) Yeah, in fact, when Angela gets kidnapped, it was supposed to be a giant car chase. And then Keanu mentioned, hey, you know, we just did one of those, and they're like, well, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, jeez. I like that kidnapping, though. They didn't need to change that. They came up with a good idea there. But, all right, so they're at the hospital. It's an entire psych ward. It's not even a ward. It is an entire skyscraper of crazy people that are now possessed... Don't you have those in L.A.? I I just figured that's where most Hollywood lives, is in a skyscraper of the insane. Perhaps. I haven't been invited to that party yet. But so they bust in there and turn on the sprinkler systems and get to the pool. And we find out that Angela has been... All right, well, let's just call it what it is. She's been raped and impregnated with the seed of the Mexican that is turning into the Antichrist. And that the will of God that has enabled all this to happen to the psychic is Gabriel. A twist I only saw coming because it was Tilda Swinton. I suppose so. (laughs) And she's the only character still alive. (laughs) So what do I need to understand about this moment? That this angel is wanting to have an apocalypse because it hates mankind and wants to see God punish them and test them and only have the most worthy come into the party. There's a lot of lip service paid to tests. But I really don't understand why Gabriel would truly want this. All you got to do is blow the horn. Maybe that's it. He wanted to just play a few notes on the horn. I don't know why he would actually want the apocalypse to happen other than to do what biblically he's prophesied to do. Well, he's jealous of humans. And I've seen this in other fiction where angels are jealous of humans because God made angels and God made humans, but... Only humans are God's favorite creature. Only we get unconditional forgiveness. And 
Gabriel thinks that humans are just going to damn ourselves anyway. We're just going to go to hell. I think he, she just wants to speed it along. Okay. I'm glad you guys have some ideas about what's going on, because I'm lost at this point. I don't understand why Gabriel's shown up. I don't understand. Are these demons that John has just defeated, were they psych patients? Were they just devil worshippers that showed up? I am lost by this point. I really wanted Balthazar to be playing this role. I feel like they were really building for him to be the bad guy. I guess it's a surprise that it's Gabriel. It's not a pleasant one. It's not a happy one. It's one to me that feels just really contrived and not right. It just in tone does not feel right here that suddenly we made Gabriel the bad guy. And it gets solved by Keanu not taking him on, not even shooting him with the crucifix gun, but slitting his own wrists. You know, this is one of Constantine's trademarks is that he knows all this magic, but he rarely uses it to save the day. It's more about his wits. He has to come up with some idea to trick everyone. So I do like this. At first, I thought, oh, is he going to go to hell to, like, kill Mammon while he's transferring to Earth and he needs a pool of liquid so he's cutting his wrist so he can dip his feet in the blood and find a cat to pet? I do like, you know, it comes back, they dropped a line earlier on that when you die, like, time stops, and it's elongated, so... It's bullet time, it's Matrix time. (laughs) I gotta say, though, I love the devil in this film. Me too. Oh, yeah. No complaints on this, Stormare's great, and they give him a great entrance. Floating barefoot. Stormare, he pops up in the weirdest place. He's playing like a crazy Russian in Armageddon, and then he shows up in like a musical with Bjork. This guy's got range. Fargo is where I really think of him. I think of him from Fargo. He was also in Armageddon. He pops up in weird places, and he does a good devil. I totally enjoy his performance here. I love his like red eyes. They do minimalist makeup, but what they do works very well. I just wish this is how the whole thing film was feeling with these characters he just hams it up and it's enjoyable i'm smiling along i don't like what keanu's doing but i'm enjoying the devil in this film i'm on your side satan i'm ready to worship you I feel like he should have had an earlier moment here. Like, in that flashback where we learned that Keanu died for two minutes, we should have seen the devil have some stake in this. What we realize is that this is the one person he most covets bringing to hell. Because I guess it was taken from him, and the fact that he is trying to get into heaven, it makes it a competition. Like, it's a race. It makes it fun for him. So, he's personally come out of hell. It's also that Constantine has stopped the devil's work. He stopped so many of the demons this time it's personal okay i didn't get that vibe mainly because i didn't see his relationship with any demons i mean they needed to establish that they needed to have gavin rosdale have a scene with the devil maybe don't show his face maybe you want to hide his identity but you want to have the sense that everyone's taking command from this guy because there's so many demons and none of them seem to be following any order if this is the guy in charge we needed to know that much earlier But I do like the scene. I like their exchange. I like the fact that he's going to savor this moment. This is the meal he most wanted to eat. And he's going to sit there and watch Keanu bleed out. I like the teasing with the lighter. Yeah, it's good stuff. Why does he not like Gabriel's plot? Is it because it is an angel that engineered it and not him? I think part of it is fathers don't like it when sons surpass them. And... When he and God finish their wager, Satan feels he'll win and it will be his earth. 
So if Mammon comes and takes over Earth, not only does it waste everything Satan has worked centuries for, but it also means that his son, not he, will be overlord of Earth. Wow, this is the first devil I've ever seen who doesn't want his son to be born on Earth. That's crazy. Usually he's overjoyed to be knocking up Rosemary, you know? I actually went right back to the first Ghost Rider. Didn't we have this exact plot with the impetuous son of Satan that Satan had to stop? Was that Ghost Rider 1 or 2? 1. 1. Oh. I repressed them both. It doesn't matter. Wes Bentley, son of Satan. Oh. And 2, Satan did want the son. Just a different son than Wes Bentley. It's not good when I'm going, oh yeah, this plot's just like the first Ghost Rider. <laughs> <laughs> Not a compliment, but visually much more splendid than Ghost Rider, which is why I must not have had any recollection of the two being comparable. You're probably right. They're probably identical. They both feel comic booky, but this one I was invested in more. And so it's a disappointment here that I don't understand why the devil tears the wings off Gabriel and doesn't allow his son to be born. Uh, he doesn't tear the wings off Gabriel. He has no power over angels. God himself does that. What? No, he takes a knife. I thought. But he can only do it because God doesn't have Gabriel's back anymore. God has taken away Gabriel's power. Oh my God. Okay. I so didn't get that. <laughs> and of course, they didn't want to visualize God. You know, Morgan Freeman was busy working somewhere else. They were like, all right, we'll just do some wind. But ugh, a very disappointing end to realize that all of these convoluted plot points really aren't going to come together. What seems even crazier is, so Constantine, he's made that self-sacrifice. I do like the devil's like dragging him to hell and like God just weighs him down so he can't even drag Constantine anymore. And Constantine starts to rise into heaven. I'm surprised he didn't have his arms out in the cross motif like he did in the Matrix sequels. Well, he did die for our sins and then get resurrected. I mean... And look at his initials, JC. And here's the crazy thing for me. Like, the crazy thing. Out of all the stuff that's going on, here's the real crazy thing. So, Satan reaches in and pulls out his cancerous lungs that have rotted away? Just the tumors. Okay, so he pulls out the tumors, which brings John back to life, despite the fact that he cut his wrists. Like, he didn't heal his wrist, he just removed the tumors, and that brings him back to life? Wouldn't he need to heal the thing that actually killed him? Uh, maybe he did it, like, in passing. Who knows? <laughs> it's kind of like a psychic surgeon. They do this in the Philippines all the time. I took it as an all-in-one healing. <laughs> okay. It changes the dynamic, and I do like that. I actually think it's kind of cool that now Keanu can be a hero because he knows what he's destined to be. He doesn't have to be resentful. He doesn't have to be doing this with the ulterior motive of greed and hoping that it makes him a better person. He's destined for heaven, and now it's the devil's job to tempt him before he dies of natural causes. I'm torn on if I like this development or not, because part of me thinks that Constantine's own hero's journey is that he is dying and he needs to come back from that. So I wonder if it's something best saved for the sequel, but by the same token, I'm frustrated by movies that always are waiting for the sequel, so I'm kind of glad they gave us a full arc here, especially since this movie didn't do so well and there's not a sequel coming. Well, we don't know that. There's talk. Yeah. We'll get to that, but yeah. Keanu is not going to reprise this role. Already better. <laughs> But that is kind of the end. After he's healed and Maman is beaten by his daddy and all of that, we kind of just 
get a bit of a montage of Angela back in her daily life. She's well-adjusted, not going to the nut house, and we see Keanu not smoking. He's chewing gum instead. I laughed. They're in love? Is this what we're supposed to realize? That she's actually fallen in love with him now? Like, this was a love story? This is courtship? No, that is not what they intended. Really? On that last scene on the balcony when he's handing her the spear and saying, go hide this, you didn't feel like he was asking her to come back later for a booty call? That was not the intent of the filmmakers, but they left it ambiguous. They did not want this to be a love story. That must have been why Cage didn't do it. (laughs) But after the credits, one last scene, Shia might come back for the sequel. (laughs) Oh, I didn't stay. Tell me what I missed. Really? Yeah, there's one last scene where Keanu goes and visits Chaz's grave, and he sets his lighter on the grave. I don't know why Shia needs to smoke. Keanu's not smoking anymore. It's not like he's giving up something very personal. It's something he doesn't need anymore. And then he turns his back, and Shia appears atop his gravestone, angel wings spread, and shoots up towards heaven. Huh. All right. So maybe he can come back and work for Midnight, or rather, maybe Midnight will be working for him. Interesting. I'm glad that there's at least some kind of development for the character. I hated the idea that he was aspiring to something and died. Perhaps all the characters that died could come back as angels and make the (laughs) sequel even more confusing. Yeah, death doesn't necessarily have the permanence when you're dealing with the afterlife. But what does has permanence is what you're about to say. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Constantine? Jacob. With all this talk about Satan and demons, my mind turns to Kiss. The band? Night and Satan Service? Not necessarily the band, though, but the acronym Keep It Simple Stupid. I think that is the biggest problem for me in this film. I could go with the silly ideas of dipping your feet in water to visit hell and this war between heaven and hell and we're caught in the middle in a spiritual matrix. I could go with that if that was just the one story that Satan's trying to take over and here's this guy that's going to fight for the side of God. But this film just starts heaping storyline upon on storyline characters upon characters and it seems like it goes out of its way to make it complicated to follow and hey maybe if i ever do sit down to watch this film again for that second viewing maybe i'll have the experience that you did arnie where i'm able to go with it more but i don't want to have that second chance i just felt this film went out of its way to make it difficult to follow and not in a way where I was intrigued because of mysteries or tone or mood. It was just, it was frustrating for so much of it. For every one thing that I liked, there were six or seven things that it threw in my way to just make me standoffish. At one point, we see Angela, she's being drowned in a tub so she could visit the afterlife and she gets so bored under the water, she just starts tapping the bathtub because it's taking so long and that's how I felt watching this film. Like, I'm dying, but I'm bored as I'm dying to death here. So in the end, it's not even that I didn't like this depiction of Constantine or even really that Keanu, I didn't think was that great in the role for the material he did. I could have gone with him if I could have followed this plot, which I couldn't. So it's not necessarily a bad film. If someone wants to YouTube a music video version of it, I'll recommend that. But I cannot recommend this film as it stands. Stewart. It's karmic payback. I feel like I'm giving the positive endorsement that you guys gave for Blade. This is bad. This is a bad movie. 
I like it. I don't even have many real good excuses as to say why, other than visually, it's just really appealing. I'm the guy that liked Doctor Strange. I like supernatural heroes. I have a soft spot for this. So this is a really good-looking movie with a really interesting character that stands around with some good actors around him talking a bunch of crazy shit while nothing really happens. It was enough for me and the demands I had for it at home. I would hope that if there ever was a sequel, they would aspire to try a little bit harder. This could be so much more than what it is. But hey, if I gave an endorsement to Golden Child, I can give this a mild recommend. And I'm surprising myself because I really thought I would hate this movie as much as I did the first time, but I'm going to give this a recommend. I really like the visuals. I really like the mood, the atmosphere. There's a lot of great performances going on here. It is not a perfect movie. There's a novelization of it. I didn't read it. It may answer a lot of questions. I don't imagine they're great answers, but there's answers somewhere out there. But the script as it is, the movie as it is, has storytelling problems. But I feel like Stuart during the Doctor Strange review, where... This is one of the first comic book movies we've watched where I went out and bought some graphic novels. I wanted to know more about Constantine and his world and the world he inhabited. All these sub-characters, all of this mysticism intrigued me. I want to read the comics that this movie was based on. Jacob, you going to join me over at Books and Nachos for that? Sure. Yeah, if you want to discuss those, I'd much rather discuss the comics. I enjoy the Vertigo series. You know, DC has recently brought Constantine back into the DC universe proper, which upset a lot of longtime fans, but I would love to revisit some of his stories. Well, there were two graphic novels that this movie was specifically based on. One was the original Sins Garth Ennis run, and the other is the origin of Constantine from the beginning. So... We'll do a couple books and nachos there. I think I want to know more about this character. And if the movie is making me go out and buy comic books, that can't be anything but a recommend. But while I'm excited to check out Constantine, or I guess in the comics it's Constantine, I don't know that I want to see Keanu back in this role, nor do I think that's going to happen as there's rumors Guillermo del Toro may be doing a Swamp Thing Constantine team-up movie? Yeah, so from the rumors I hear, it's being labeled as DC Dark, which is interesting because right now in the DC Universe, there is a Justice League Dark, which is all the magic users, Constantine and Santana, and it's got a cool, like, occult vibe, so it seems like they're kind of trying to riff off that, bringing Constantine back to his roots with Swamp Thing from the original comics. It sounds interesting if it actually happens. In my mind, I'm imagining Doctor Strange with Man-Thing, so that doesn't necessarily sound like it would be coherent, but with Del Toro involved, it probably will look great. It could be fun. It could be eye candy, if nothing else, but it's not encouraging. This movie was eye candy, so I'm kind of ambivalent about anything more they do with it. I like occult superheroes. I want them to get it right. I want someone really talented to do it. Maybe that's the project. I don't know. Well, the thing is, Del Toro is working on this, but he doesn't have Warner Brothers on board. He's, like, trying to pitch it. So, if it were me... I love Del Toro. I'd give him anything he wants to do, but we'll see if that happens. But that is the only really solid information that's ever been given about Constantine back on the big screen. 
So, yeah, I'm going to recommend Constantine and be very happy because I'm not quite sure that next week would be. And I was afraid of three for three on the Red Arrows this retrospective. You know who's pissed is Tank Girl. You're not going to read her comic, but you're going to read this? This is just as sloppy as Tank Girl. I just think it's more my thing this time. Whereas that other one, it was easier to blow off. They're both pretty weak movies. But you know what? All Jonah Hex has to do is keep pace. If they can just build the world, I'll forgive it all of its failings. There's some good actors in this and, of course, some terrible ones in Jonah Hex. It may not be all bad, right? Well, we are going back to the Wild Wild West and Arnie's feelings towards westerns are notorious with this podcast yeah i'm not the comic book guy i can't say i'm looking forward to next week but at least it'll be over with jonah hex next week never a good sign for a retrospective when your attitude is at least it will be over with (laughs) i'm being honest and listeners if you want to hear more of our reviews you can head to our archive section at nowplayingpodcast.com where you can hear our reviews of the ghost rider films the daredevil films the blade films a lot of comic book movie reviews that we've referenced this time around or movies stewart liked like a scanner darkly as part of the philip k dick retrospective so many more in our archives at nowplayingpodcast.com and remember we still have a small hand full of dvd roms available you can find the details by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com those dvds have every podcast we did through december 31st of 2012 including all of our bonus retrospectives that are not available for download and we have no plans to make any of them ever available again when these dvds are gone so are these podcast reviews of the jaws retrospective the child's play retrospective as well as some easter egg podcasts we've done along the way like the social network and yes the golden child garbage pale kids i know who killed me all of the details can be read by clicking the banner at the top at nowplayingpodcast.com so Stuart, jacob thank you for joining me and until next time i'll see you cats at the big jam in the sky Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. It's been swell, but swelling's gone now. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another DC Heroes movie. Suit yourself. Can't say I blame you. In the archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can hear reviews of comic book movies such as all the Batman films, Green Lantern, Catwoman, the Marvel Avengers films, and many more. Well, I thought that with your background, you could at least... Point me in the right direction. Yeah, okay, sure. You can also hear our reviews of non-comic-based films, including Star Trek, Predator, James Bond, Rambo, Rocky, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. We'll see you very soon. You can also read written movie reviews by the Now Playing hosts at the Venganza Media Gazette. The link can be found at the Now Playing homepage. You know, I'm really starting to like it here. People are nice, food's great, and I love my job. 
while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. I came as fast as I could. I know you probably didn't need help, but I got here as fast as I could. You can also follow Now Playing at Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Abandon all hope. Ye who enter The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Grab your child and tree into thy kingdom! Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You want to see me tomorrow? You pay fair like everyone else. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Transactions all it was. I'll collect my hundred dollars on them and be on my way. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties, coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more. Find me something he loves and bring it to me. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Congratulations. Now Playing's DC Heroes Retrospective Series is edited by Dylan, Jeff, and Arnie. Hey, which of you quarters would like an oil change, hmm? Now Playing credit narration by Brock. You're a walking, talking, living microphone. Now Playing is the DC Comics, Warner Brothers Pictures, or United Artists. Tank Girl is the property of DC Comics and United Artists, and Constantine and Jonah Hex are the mix and Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. As long as they don't find out, who gives a shit? The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Well, that's a bore. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Say it, say it. Just say it. I won. I won. No! No! Say I won! I won! You remember Bush? Everything's in? Nothing? Oh, Bush, the band. I'm like, what does this got to do with the president? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking president, too. I'm like, what? I'm like, what? Did he play Bush on something? No, he seems kind of young. No, no, no. <laughs> Bush, everything's okay, in. Okay, it's clicking now. Yeah, Razor Blade Suitcase. Shia LaBeouf. Or is it LaBeouf? I never know it's this. Buff. I think it's LaBeouf. Yeah, it is Buff. Okay. You just want to call him a boof. I just call no, him the it beef. Sounds, it sounds derogatory. <laughs> <laughs> it, it means lo- the beef. It does. Yes. Exactly. No, I know it does. Yeah. Every time in my notes, it says the beef. Yeah. <laughs> he is so not the beef. <laughs> so it's Shia LaBeouf? Okay. Or. <clears throat> God damn it. <clears throat> That's what you get for, for dissing Scanner Dark Life. <laughs> no. <laughs> they tie this so much into Christi- Christianity.
They tied Can the you say so- that word? Yeah, yeah. They tie- I, I, that's not even the word I wanted to use. That's why I stuttered <laughs> through it. 